0: Welcome to the marketing stir podcast by Starista, probably the most entertaining marketing podcast you're going to put in your ears. I'm Jared Walls, associate producer and Starista's creative copy manager. The goal of this podcast is to chat with industry leaders to get their take on the current challenges of the market, but also have a little fun along the way. In this episode, Vincent and AJ talk to Ian Wright, chief data officer, data-driven marketing at Equifax. He dives into the particulars of how data is handled in various parts of an organization, as well as how legislation is changing the data landscape as a whole. He also shares with the guys the backstory to his multiple citizenships. AJ chops some wood, and Vincent professes his love for rugby. Give it a listen.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Starista's The Marketing Stir. I feel like it's been so long since I've talked to you. I, of course, am one of your hosts, Vincent Petrofessa, the vice president of B2B products here at Starista. It is so good to be here. Starista, for those of you who don't know, really quick, this is what pays the bills. I'm kidding. I just always hear people on the radio say that. But Starista, we are marketing technology, identity marketing company. We have our own B2B and B2C data. People utilize us. Customers to target those data sets to get new customers. We also have our own DSP called Adster. We can help execute media for you. OTT, CTV. I just threw a bunch of acronyms at you, but we are here to help. Vincent at Sarista.com. That is my email address. That is how confident I am in our products and services. I just gave you my email address. The other thing I'm very confident in is my co host, ladies and gentlemen. My commander-in-chief, I call him the San Antonio Slayer. We have to get a t-shirt made. He loves that nickname. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. A.J. Gupta. What's up, A.J.?
2: Vincent, can't say I've been happier to have a bottle of clean water ever before in my life than I was this week. Uh, it's uh, to just walk into the grocery store and be able to buy water, clean water. It was a remarkable thing. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, it's been a crazy couple of weeks here in Texas, but uh, this week is looking up and up.
1: Well, yes, we are, of course, uh, you know, we're talking about AJ is in San Antonio, as well as our, our headquarters and our production team on the marketing stir. And this is taking place right now about a week after the snowstorm, the loss of water, heat, electricity. And so our our hearts, you know, go out to everyone in Texas who suffered that. But yeah, I remember I saw pictures. I saw your you your beautiful wood floor with water covered. I remember you were chopping wood. You know, I would never take you for a guy who knew how to chop wood. AJ, uh, myself included, <laughs> I'm not an outdoorsman, so uh, I, I share that with you. But wow, what was that week like? I I mean, I. I remember Hurricane Sandy here in New York City not being great, but tell me about that.
2: So it's actually a little bit crazy. And we were one of the fortunate ones. A, we had a fireplace that we had never used. But B, uh, the guy that owned the house before us was kind of a do-it-yourself type guy. So there's a lot of random stuff in the backyard. And one of the things was these chopped pieces of woods, like tons of it. I could have gone for a whole week just uh, burning that those logs up, right? And it was definitely like somebody who had done it themselves. And it had been sitting there for five years in the backyard and I never really knew why or what for. But when I woke up and it was 45 degrees uh, in the house, that's when uh, I, I re- remembered there was something in the backyard. Now, f- at this point it was completely covered in snow, which by itself is baffling in Texas. But this guy's work about, I don't know, whenever he did it 5, 10 years ago, chopping the woods came in really handy. So, um, but it's hard to describe Uh, 45 degrees and the temperature outside was 7 degrees, uh, no heat. So never, uh, never really thought uh, one could survive in that condition. So I guess the good news is now we know it is possible to survive in 7 degree weather. So.
1: Yeah. Well, no, I heard a lot of stories from our coworkers It's said, like, well, thank goodness I had gas in my car and I was using the heat from the car to go in there. It, it's, it was just uh, crazy Well, I'm back. Uh, I'm glad that things are, you know, semi back to normal. We're glad that uh, you're here with us. We are glad that this next guest is with us. It is from a little company called Equifax. Ha <laughs> ha. I kid is one of the biggest companies in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome the Chief Data Officer, Data-Driven Marketing at Equifax Marketing Services, Ian Wright. What's going on, Ian?
3: Hey, Vincent. Thanks for the warm welcome, AJ. Uh, Nice to hear you as well. It's a lovely spring day here. I can't say we went through the trials and tribulations that, uh, unfortunately, the folks in Texas went through, but it's a nice blue sky day here in Northern Virginia.
1: Nice, one then thanks for you know calling in. Thanks for joining us, Ian, and thank you for moving this uh, around your you know your schedule. You were scheduled last week, and that when this was going on. So we appreciate your understanding there, Ian. So tell us. I mean, Equifax people. Most people know Equifax for one thing, right? You know, one of the big three uh, credit scores, credit unions. Uh, I have an eight. I have an eight ten credit score. I'm very happy about that. It has nothing to do. I'm just happy i just want people to know that maybe i shouldn't tell people that and now they're going to steal my identity great but ian tell people out there about equifax and more importantly you know the division and the role that you find yourself in
3: sure well first uh, welcome to being part of the 800 club with a credit score over 800 very well done but you're, you're correct. Most folks know us as a credit bureau, but we've actually got a very uh, interesting and varied marketing business. And also just across Equifax overall, we are more of a data analytics and technology company. Uh, we've got insights that provide information on consumer economic and financial well-being and also commercial insights. Uh, the group I work with, uh, the data-driven marketing business, has uh, unique insights on consumer wealth uh, and banking uh, information. Uh, We we get this information through a network of financial institutions who provide us with very uh, detailed consumer account and investment position position information that is anonymous, uh, so we don't know how much money, for instance, I personally have in a bank account. But we can use this aggregated and de-identified data to create very powerful insights. So we like to say if money and spending matter, we matter. If you're a bank or if you're a wealth management firm and you're trying to understand, gosh, who has the the potential to have a high lifetime value with us, uh, we can give you those insights. But also if you're in industries like telecommunications or anything in travel, leisure and, and entertainment, anywhere where you need to understand, you might have extra economic power and be more financially resilient and, and be able to, to afford my high-end luxury products and I can segment my offerings to them versus who's someone, you know, more in the mass market and I, I can right size products to offer to them. So I can maximize my return on, on my marketing efforts because I know that while someone might have the intent to buy our products, I also now know that they actually have the abil- ability to act on that intent.
1: And Ian, talk about, you know, chief data officer, right? That is sure. a that's a huge undertaking, I think, anywhere, but especially at a company like Equifax. Walk me through some of the day to day. Then I'd love to understand as a uh, kind of a staple question we ask here at the Marketing Stir, how you got into marketing. To talk, talk to us about that. So your current role, some of the responsibilities there, and then how you got into marketing.
3: Yeah, very interesting question about a chief data officer. I find that's a very new role in the, in the economy, so we'll find definitions of a, a CDO, a chief data officer that are very technical, right, and are focused on uh, things like what's the architecture we're using, what are sort of the IT commitments. That's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, I run into definitions that are more of a chief insights officer that says, okay, we have considerable data properties and data assets across our business. How do we leverage these assets to better understand our customers? If we're a brand or a firm like I work with with Equifax, how can we leverage these assets to create unique insights that can help our clients uh, solve their, their urgent critical business needs? And that's more the definition of my day-to-day. So I look at our portfolio, I talk to clients, I see what's going on in the market, and I try to put together uh, solutions that as the puck moves, we're able to meet clients where they need new information, where you could imagine pre and post COVID, they had significantly different challenges and needed to make sure that as economy, as the economy shifted consumer needs, that they were ready with solutions to meet those new needs. And those are the sorts of things that I do uh, on a day-to-day basis.
1: So I love asking this yeah. question. Because not every time, Ian, it's like, well, I studied marketing, and here I am. Tell us about your story. Yeah,
3: it was not a straight path at all. And in fact, I had been uh, doing research for institutional investors. This was back in the day when apartheid was still around. Uh, and we would help socially responsible investors understand the sorts of companies that were maybe in South Africa. Uh, or other issues around um, around socially responsible investing. So I was doing this extensive research advising investors. I realized we were leaving a lot of data on the floor that could be used for other purposes uh, to help inform those investments and then ultimately help them understand the products that they would want to support or maybe the products that they would you know, prefer not to buy. So my father's engineering sort of genes started to bubble up. And that's what I did. I, I moved into product management, I went back to school and got a, a master's degree in computer science, started putting solutions together in that space, and then slow, slowly started to drift more on the data side. So I could look at the fuel that was really um, sort of driving these engines. so working with platforms, but helping them understand, then, from a marketing perspective, um, different levels of data, different quality of data different sort of insights that they could piece together to kind of bring those uh, sort of red, yellow, green uh, decision points available, uh, or in front of the decision, the decision makers through a UI.
2: And that's a, that's a pretty cool story. I uh, appreciate you sharing that. And you know, one question that's become sort of a hot buzzword in our industry is identity and yeah i would love to kind of uh understand how you look at identity and how equifax is looking at uh, identity the word
3: yeah gosh you could look at identity through very different viewpoints right and, and from a marketing perspective i start from what i i hate to call it but today is old school it's offline identity it's understanding who you are through your telephone number and through your street address and and kind of through who you are as a person. And then as we evolved and identity took on a a different concept in the online world, uh, and it became very important to understand who you are and where I can connect to you through all these new channels that explode, whether it was online display with cookies or mobile ad IDs or addressable TV with, with OTT IDs. Using probabilistic or deterministic methods to create that that cross-device graph, started to see that well in the past uh, what was really valuable to marketers was that attribute information. So how I could describe who you are, and and yes, I needed your identity information to to then understand how I can connect to you. But today, that identity information is just as important as that attribute descriptive information because I need to find you through all those channels, because you might be only using one or two of them, but I don't know which one or two of them that you're using. So it's become a lot more complex from a marketing perspective. And then in the industry that I primarily work in with financial services, there are also considerations of, well, we have identity data that's governed by a Graham-Leach-Wiley Act that can be used for specific purposes to help me understand who you are when I have a financial relationship with you, versus identity information that uh, is not restricted to those uses, but then means I can't leverage those data sources. So in the last five years, I've seen identity be something that seemed very straightforward and basic, and we've cranked up the volume to 11 um, beyond 10. And I think in the next half year, three quarters of a year with, with what's going on with industry changes in browsers and with you know, Apple's um, uh, changes to IDFA, it's just going to get more complex and more difficult for folks to really have the ability to, to truly understand someone's complete identity graph. So it's the sort of solutions and the sort of market needs that your company definitely fulfills.
2: So, for, for Equifax, is it to, on the marketing side, is it kind of fair to say, you can't always use the data that uh, the other side probably has access to because of regulations, right?
3: Yeah, that that's correct. When when we look at ourselves as a business, we uh, are highly regulated in certain parts of our company. In other areas, we're still regulated, all data's regulated, but maybe under different considerations, right? So, yes, we've got very highly sensitive data from uh, being a credit bureau that we want to make sure is only used for those purposes that that are permitted uh, by the FCRA and by the leach bliley Act. And then on the other side of the wall, which is where I work, it's less regulated. It's marketing data where we can try to work with folks to piece together graphs to help our clients find consumers and then engage them through those different channels.
1: And uh, Ian, before I, I really love that the breakdown of chief data officer, right? It's because it's kind of a new, yeah, ca- kind of a new title and different functionalities. Because I also think a lot of people think, wait, chief data officer is that he or she in the server room crunching numbers, right? Their own little desk, but it, it's it's different, right? The way uh, you know so your involvement. So I appreciate you. You know, you're breaking that down for us. You know, the question I have is around data specifically. It's, you know, what are some of the important things to keep in mind when turning different types of data into actionable solutions?
3: Yeah, great question. So I can maybe come at this in a a couple directions. Um, One, I used to use uh, a famous pizza chains slogan of better pizza, better i uh, sorry, better ingredients, better pizza, yeah. better data, better insights. So you have to keep in consideration the quality of data that you have available to you. Um, yes, I can get, for instance, information about someone's income. It can be verified income that someone has been uh, provided or permiss- permissible purpose income where you've shared it with someone for maybe a, a loan application or for other reasons. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you might have uh, income data that's been generated by looking at uh, the census and trying to model that down to households or from survey results, right, where someone asks me, what is my income? And I try to think, well, probably I'm going to respond with my wages and not include income from maybe stipends or business income or income I earn from my investment. So every measure that you, you, you use can have a varying degree of quality. And I think that's always something uh, to keep in mind that if you're leveraging data to meet your goals, you're gonna put a sort of a governor on your ability to, to maximize your return on investment if what you're putting into that process is not the highest quality that it can be. So cleaner data, more high quality data are just gonna maximize your potential for ROI and, and for effectiveness in, in all the applications that you're going to use it for. Um, another angle I would, I would like to mention is permissible purpose, both from what regulations and, and uh, sort of industry bodies uh, would like you to use, or how they would like you to use the data, but then also from a rising concern about consumer privacy and consumer opt-out. So do I have the ability legally to use this data for these purposes? yes, okay, I can check that box. But also, do I have the, the rights um, from the consumer? Do I have a consent from the consumer? So there's a growing regulatory governance sort of framework that really all data applications are going to have to um, consider. In, in my own state, Virginia, we just passed the, the sort of second CCPA. So we're starting to see it's not only California that is addressing uh, these sorts of issues, but it's, spreading state to state, and it could actually uh, spring up on a federal level. So we have one law covering all the states.
1: Yeah, and, and it kind of goes back to, you know, I've always heard the term or the phrase like garbage in, garbage out, right? That's kind of, uh, you know, what you were saying there. And Ian, you touched upon yeah. it there about, you know, as far as actionable and, and even what you said as far as the quality there. Can you elaborate a little bit more about what marketers, data analysts should be looking for when choosing a data provider?
3: Yeah, and transparency is going to be key, right? That folks are transparent about the sources of their data, the the freshness of their data, uh, and also the sort of permissible purposes, yes, that they they can uh, share this data with you. In fact, the IAB uh, put together a data transparency label, which is a fabulous development uh, in the industry, at least for using marketing data online, where you can go to an audience that uh, you're interested in purchasing and leveraging. And if that vendor, if that data provider participates in this program, you'll see a label that looks very much like uh, the sorts of labels you'll see on, on food packaging. Um, And it's standardized so then you can compare vendors um, against each other. So that's one way that the industry has tried to address that question and help uh, marketers understand maybe the the quality of one data source versus another. Um, But then there's always just having a great relationship uh, with your vendors or hopefully you consider them as partners. Uh, And when you ask those questions about how they're sourcing the data, how frequently it's updated, you know, how they are ensuring that they have the rights to share this data that you're getting thorough and transparent answers and you're not left with some questions about maybe the applicability of the data, um, the veracity of the data. Because if, if a vendor has good data, they're gonna wanna show that to you. They're gonna show you that they have some, a quality product and they have nothing to hide behind.
2: And how's the pandemic been for you? Uh, personally and uh, professionally
3: as well? Yeah, from a personal standpoint, I haven't been on an airplane since the first week of March 2020. And that's probably the longest time and at least a 10-year stretch uh, for me. So nearly uh, approaching a year here without being on an airplane. And, And so personally, one of the ways that I've seen myself adjust is I've realized how much of a different life that is. You know, living out of a suitcase, getting on a flight two out of four weeks, um, not being at home, not being in the neighborhood, uh, not being uh, present for all uh, sort of events that we have locally, uh, to having much more rhythm to my life. I am definitely a creature of habit, and I understand that a lot more uh, after the last 11 months. I like knowing what I'm going to do in the morning that I'm going to you know, do uh, go work out, do my Bible study, do my reading every morning, be able to have the time to do that, go into work, whether that's here or going into our office and having that regular end of the day um, that follows. I would say, though, that it's starting to become Blur's Day especially during the winter, where it was <laughs> hard to tell Thursday. which day it was, which week it was. It was the first week of January or the third week of January when outside was gray. It was really hard to, to kind of get a rhythm um, of the seasons. Um, from a more professional perspective, though, um, I've had positions where I'd been remote and other positions where I've worked um, in the office. So from uh, a standpoint of being able to get the work done that I needed to get done. I was pretty well set up uh, with a home office and we had gone through our migration internally to using uh, Google Suite. Um, so had collaboration tools already in place. So I didn't find, and I, our teams really didn't find it was too difficult to switch from being in the office to uh, being online and conducting our meetings using uh, you know, sharing tools and the sorts of um, connectivity which we all have now today. The, the pieces we did in this, which I think uh, when I've talked to others have been a little bit across the board, are those whiteboarding sessions. Yeah, there are tools that you can use to do digital whiteboarding, but there's really nothing that I found that can replace even distance in a room together, having a whiteboard, being able to uh, sketch something out, erase that easily, switch it, have people interrupt? Have people play off each other? Kind of brainstorming is something that's been uh, maybe not as efficient, I found, as, as pre-COVID.
2: And in uh, with kind of the uh, changes that have happened and keep happening through the workplaces, what's kind of your view going forward uh, with your team? Are you finding them? Uh, do, do you think? work from home trends will continue? And I guess the other related question is, uh, did you have a lot of remote employees before as well?
3: So in my current position, I didn't have, um, or I don't have a lot of remote employees. In, in previous jobs I have, uh, but I, I think moving forward, what we're gonna see uh, in, in my organization is a mix. Uh, we'll probably have a hybrid situation where we will have days We'll try to schedule those in-person meetings uh, where what we can get done with, I just said, sort of a brainstorming session can be scheduled uh, on specific days. You know, pick a Tuesday and a Thursday, and those are the days that maybe you go into the office for the reasons of um, needing to collaborate. Uh, But I also believe that uh, the business um, and everybody as employees and colleagues see the benefit of letting folks work at home. Letting the schedule kind of fit the rhythm of their life too. So I think we're going to see more folks trying to adopt more of that hybrid approach where if I can work from home, I will. If I need to go in the office for, for purposes, I will. Um, but we'll still have some folks who I think want to go into the office every day. Um, we, we have a few of those today, right? Um, if you don't have space at home where you can't have, uh, you know, dedicated, quiet space if you have a call with your client that you know you won't be interrupted, or if you're single and you just wanna get out and be around other people. um, We do have folks who are going in every day um, for those and some other reasons. So they're gonna continue to do so. So I think we're gonna end up seeing a mix. Um, One development that I think we might see are people maybe in the summer asking to work remotely, not from their home office. You know, finding that cabin in New England or, or finding a house at the beach for a month and actually working from those locations. And I think it's a great benefit that companies can provide moving forward, because at least from our experience, um, our productivity hasn't gone down. And people have been really responsib- responsible about ensuring that they're getting their work done, knowing that they have additional flexibility from working remotely.
2: Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting with, uh, I know in Texas, we're fortunate not to have any state taxes, uh, but a lot of other states uh, really like to know how many days you spent in a certain state so you can be taxed accordingly. And with more people doing what you just said, with uh, maybe spending summers somewhere else, or maybe they're totally somewhere else for six months, you know, it's hard to tell. So that's going to be an interesting situation.
1: Uh, Ian, you mentioned before the, a lot of the travel and I know from just going to different conferences and, you know, Equifax was really prominent at, you know, different events. How has that changed? You know, the way Equifax is just, Equifax is marketing itself and, and going out and getting your word out there of your services
3: yeah, so we've, I think we've tried to, to pivot as others have and trying to see what sort of mix um, works for our clients and, and for our prospects and markets. So we've participated in virtual events uh, where we're on a panel like we would be in a uh, more local or live event um, and trying to gauge whether we're really being able to contribute to the event and also to our clients' presence there but we're, we're also just about to test some more um, personal or, or intimate events where we might have a group of eight clients together and then we'll uh, copy that for another uh, section of clients. So maybe we're not able to get one-on-one, but we're able to have um, conversations at a smaller scale than we would find in those larger virtual events where maybe it's a little bit more difficult to get that engagement. Uh, you know, all those events are wonderful. They have their exhibit halls, they have their networking opportunities, but some of the participation there can be a little hit and miss. So we're trying to see if we're more purposeful, purposeful about having direct engagement. Um, clients will, number one, be more interested in that sort of uh, more focused attention. Um, but number two, also feel more open to share when it's you know, eight to 10 uh, colleagues at at, uh, at other clients versus, uh, you know, in a huge network call. So it's still a little bit hit and miss, um, but we've been able to find these pockets of success that we're trying to grow on.
1: Yeah, I think that's something that, you know, Starista ourselves is kind of thinking about, you know, we were, you, you mentioned uh, first week of March, I think, AJ, that's the last time you and I were uh, on a plane, I think we were attending the live ramp conference it almost, uh, so yeah, over a year ago, almost a year. So it's, it's crazy, you know, and I think what we're leaning towards is to start out maybe some of those, like you said, intimate events here. I'm in New York City. So maybe it's, you know, a gathering of, you know, four to six to eight clients together. Uh, if dinner spread out, maybe. So yeah, no, I, I definitely uh, agree with you there. Ian, I want to ask you something because it's, you, know, you have a variety of different experience and I want to understand some advice on how you bridge the gaps of understanding between sales teams and then technical groups that you've dealt with on both sides, given your marketing work.
3: Yeah, so I, I actually... Though I'm a a chief data officer right now, I spent most of my career as a product manager. And in product management, to be successful, you have to uh, be able to be comfortable with responsibility without authority. Uh, You need to be able to work with technical folks on one side who uh, you need to rely on to be able to deliver on the requirements you put to the right, to the finance folks to secure the budget, uh, that you need to, to deliver on your overall roadmap, to marketing folks to be able to um, take care of your go-to-market needs and have your product known in the market, to educate sales and, and get them interested in selling your product to help them, them reach quota, and then an executive audience to be able to gain sponsorship of how you believe the company needs to move. So. I've spent a lot of my career um, working between these groups, helping, um, helping them understand the reasons why I believe a company uh, might need to develop a product or on a more strategic level, move in a certain direction. I find a lot of times if you can put yourself in that person's position, understand uh, what their day-to-day priorities are, and then on another level, how they're going to be evaluated at the end of the year, so what their goals are and maybe also um, the kind of perspective that they bring into um, the world and maybe the bias or the strengths. If I can put myself in their position and understand their world, I can then understand how I should engage them, the sorts of points in an argument that are they're gonna find important, they're gonna wanna drill down on. And on the other side, the sorts of concerns and needs that they're gonna wanna make sure I address. So if I can help them understand that Um, I understand who they are, I understand how I need to deliver to meet their needs, but also I can describe the benefits in a way that they're gonna um, uh, see uh, do have value, then you're gonna be able to build those bridges. Um, And I I still carry that forward in my chief data officer role, um, but it's a little bit different sort of um, tune to it. But I think anytime you sit across the table from someone, if you can put yourself in their shoes, if you can better understand what their needs are and use that not in a manipulative way, but then to help you create a bridge between the two of you, you're only gonna gain more trust and confidence in that person um, that they believe if they uh, follow on, on what you're trying to lead or a decision that they need to make that would be going in your favor, um, that it's not gonna be something that's gonna impact negatively upon them Um, or you're not trying to actually, as I just said, manipulate them for gain.
2: Ian, on the uh, marketing side of Equifax, who is sort of the ideal client? Uh, I'm guessing finance is obviously a big vertical for you guys, but are there other (laughs) verticals and types of companies you play in?
3: Yeah, definitely. Uh, As I I said earlier, um, and and you're correct, AJ, uh, banks... Uh, Wealth management firms, credit unions, all those sorts of folks are are definitely our core market. But as we see the financial services market also evolve, um, we're finding that um, we can really help uh, firms that are in the alternative finance space or in fintech um, who need to understand the market, find new prospects, um, see where their portion of the market um, is going and how they've been affected, which is typically the younger part of the market affected by COVID. Um, but then if you leave financial services, uh, if you think about any vertical where um, someone sells services or products to consumers where they can segment their product offering um, based upon um, that consumer's uh, economic or financial means, those are areas where our solutions uh, very much resonate. Um, one area I could, I could bring up are, um, is in travel, leisure and entertainment where uh, we do a lot of work with vacation property companies. And you know, you might get an offer to uh, go to a weekend at a certain property for free. Um, it's to entice you to become a member, but those are very expensive um, weekends uh, for that company, whether you're talking about like, like Wyndham or Hyatt or Marriott or, or any of those other firms, Disney. Uh, and we can help those firms understand, well, here's someone who can afford your rich properties, your high-end properties. So. When you're considering providing them an offer, that's a right product for them, where um, someone else might not have the financial means to be able to convert on that offering. So right size your offer for that, um, that household. Maybe make it more of your uh, mass market sort of line. So any of those industries where you need to understand how to stratify or segment the market so you can then appropriately provide them with an offer Um, across your products uh, is where we resonate auto would be another one can i afford a luxury auto or do i just like browsing the ferrari site website so i might have the intent to buy a ferrari but do i have the ability and we can help you understand that second piece of ability because if i have the intent but not the ability i'm never going to become more than a qualified lead right um, but if I have the ability, then, yep, yeah, market it to me because I have the potential to convert.
2: Got it. Uh, that's, that's very interesting. I certainly like to uh, occasionally walk through the Ferrari lane and my <laughs> wife is usually having a panic attack about it. So. <laughs> uh, but so Ian, what's kind of uh, new and exciting for you guys this year, anything that you could uh, share publicly?
3: Yeah, so one of the areas that we've been uh, focusing on since um, COVID hit was helping uh, financial services and marketers understand who might be a harder hit, what parts of the economic spectrum, maybe uh, which industries. So consumers who are more in those service industries might be harder hit than others. Um, To help them understand who has the sort of financial durability to be able to um, assume Maybe some of the stresses that they've been put under um, economically in the last year, um, but still be able to uh, maybe repay commitments or take on additional commitments if you're in the lending area, or if you're you're selling goods and services, be able to make purchases what they could in the past. So um, we've been working on a a measure of financial durability to help identify where consumers are likely to be uh, along that spectrum. You know, are they very resilient? Um, do they have, you know, considerable assets and income? And has their spending power really not been affected by COVID versus on the very uh, other end of the spectrum of, you know, these folks are in a tight spot. They might have very restricted um, ability to purchase your goods. Um, now, might, but that doesn't mean now is the time maybe to abandon them. Now is the time really is to help them walk through this, this period. You know, right size offers to them. Um, maybe provide forbearance options to them, um, give them more basic products, help them through this process, so they continue to be their your customers. You know, in the future when we're past the, this crazy uh, COVID pandemic uh, stretch we're in.
1: And Ian, now we kind of like to ask you know more some questions on you know personal side. Uh, some staple questions also that we have here on the marketing stir. Well, the first one is kind of a highlight shining moment in, uh, in your career, the last say five years, 10 years that you'd like to share with us.
3: Yeah. So probably the, the biggest shining moment. um, And it's going to be a more recent one. It might be a little wonky. It might be a little boring, but uh, it's really uh, when CCPA came up, uh, just the last few years, you know, it was CCPA, the, you know, the California um, law regarding uh, consumer privacy and, and how data providers need to consider um, consumer considerations and provide consumer opt-out and all those sorts of things uh, when, uh, w- when working with data on California residents. The law was still being um, uh, looked at and, and up for maybe some adjustments up to three weeks before it was even um, adopted or enacted into law. So for data firms, we had to be working on a solution which would ensure that all of our operations adhere to this law uh, and that our solutions would still be able to, um, uh, to be used by our clients uh, and our performance would not be affected uh, literally up to the last minute where there could have been changes to it. Um, so we, in a very rapid time, ensured that both our data providers and our clients were comfortable uh, with our operations, were comfortable with the data that we were using, uh, were comfortable using our solutions, but also that we had put in all of the the sort of operations uh, around engaging consumers in California um, with consumer opt-out, with the ability to access the information we have on their their households and decide whether they want us to, to share that with others. So it was an incredible new um, initiative for us in a very new area of consumer privacy uh, that we were able to turn around very quickly and put in place without really affecting our ability to provide our consumers with insights and internally, just to be frank, to generate revenue and to maintain regular operations. So from a professional standpoint, be that CCPA effort.
1: I, I like that you know that uh, that's the first ian that's the first that uh, yeah, anyone's said you know what That's ccpa positive and, but you know and i love that what you've done with it there and and it, it just goes to show you equifax is you know takes uh, uh, privacy very seriously and so i'm i'm glad you mentioned it there's a first i like it though i like it um ian I want to dig into, you You, you have a crack team here of, producer, of producers, they're like detectives. You hold citizenship in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. What's the backstory there?
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm really all over the place. Uh, <laughs> so um, my, my father was Scottish. He grew up in a small uh, shipping town outside of Glasgow uh, called Greenock. Um, a lot of the old uh, major cruise lines were, were from the stratified area. Uh, He met my mother, uh, who was from Birmingham, England, uh, and uh, they came over after World War II, after my dad had served in in the Royal Navy during World War II, to Canada, sort of a a very typical migration for folks. Um, uh, Spent some time in Canada, my brothers were born there, and then decided to to come down to the States. Uh, So I was born in Canada, but six six months old when we came to the U.S. Um, I became a U.S. citizen by choice. Uh, but by birth, I'm a Canadian citizen, and then through my, my parents, also a, a UK citizen. And let's see what happens with Scotland. I could have British citizenship and then still some EU uh, connections through Scotland.
1: So when someone asked, they said, hey, what, you know, someone asked me, I'm like, I'm American, my family's uh, ancestors from Italy. Are you consider yourself a uh, Canadian? If someone were to ask you.
3: Yeah. So I, I consider myself American because six months old, up, yeah. I, I was in the U.S., but not fully. It's interesting. I, I, when I go back to the U.K., when I visit relatives, that also feels like home. Um, and, you know, my parents were British. So a lot of the mannerisms, a lot of the sort of practices we had were, you know, being an English and Scottish family in the U.S. So my heart sometimes feels closer to being from the U.K., but um, definitely from a day to day perspective, solidly American.
2: Nice. Well, Ian, I, I think you're the first one with three citizenships on the podcast. So uh, 60 <laughs> guests in. <laughs> that's, that's cool. Um, what's kind of a marketing peeve, something that you dislike, that you see? Uh, you seem like a very nice guy, so, so you might be a little shy on it, but
3: yeah gosh um, so and and this one's probably everyone's gonna shake their head on um, it, it's not a unique one but um, so I you know I'm in marketing I, I we cold call I know folks cold call and I, I get a lot of cold call um, uh, not only uh, calls actually but also email um, email messages so I understand folks need to do it um, but that second and that third and that fourth and that fifth of, did I read your email? Um, sometimes those get under my skin. It's like, yep, if you didn't get a bounce back, then I either read your email, um, and, and this is maybe something not to pursue because it's not either the right time or, or maybe we're in a different industry than you thought. And if I didn't get your email, all those follow ups are going into the spam folder where they went before. So, um, I like the knock on the door, but I don't like the constant knock on the door.
1: Yeah, I like that. That's kind of what a lot of people say, because it kind of goes to our question. We always ask, like, you know, LinkedIn, what's a message you don't you don't like? It, it's kind of the same thing. It, hey, did something yeah. happen? Did I offend you? No, I just, I'm not answering, you know, it's, it's that common thing. I also hate on LinkedIn. I've said it before when, if when I do connect with someone, they hit me right away with a solicitation. I'm like, Hey, Hey, get to know me first, like learn what I like doing, but you know, anyway, uh, Ian, and also just uh, as we wrap this up here, what do you like to do personally? Some hobbies that you have, you touched on a few. Uh, I know you share my, my love of rugby, um but talk to us a little bit about some of those uh, hobbies that you like
3: yeah i'm gonna focus i'm gonna be a spokesperson person for rugby right now uh i'm i'm very much involved with youth rugby and the, the president for youth rugby uh, in virginia uh worked with my son's club i like to say though and and i think you'll get this joke and i've never played a downer rugby um, I just fell in love with the sport. There are no downs in rugby. No, there's um, no downs I just fell in love yep. with... <laughs> I just fell in love with the sport through my son um, who played in, in junior high and high school. Love how uh, it teaches teamwork. I love that there's a position for every sort of body type on the field. If you're one of the bigger guys or one of the smaller guys, there is a position or, or a girl too. The, uh, rugby is very active across um, uh, boys and girls. So. Yeah. I love it for those reasons, but then I also love it for how it teaches about life. Um, you wanna really win when you're on the pitch, you're giving hundred percent, but when the game's over, when the match is over, you fully respect your, your opponent. Gotcha. Um, you go over, you shake their hand, depending upon how old you are, you have a social occasion afterwards, maybe get an adult beverage. Mm-hmm. Um, as fans, you cheer for your team, you don't boo um, the other team. And then finally, um, the referee has the highest level of respect. As you know, Vincent, he's addressed as sir. One person gets to address him that way. So I, I just love the sport on um, both 15s and the sevens version, which, which my wife described as watching like a fast break in basketball <laughs> for the full game. And it's true. Just very exciting and fast moving.
1: So yeah.
3: I've been focused on rugby a lot in this pandemic.
1: <laughs> that, that's awesome. You know, I, that was the crazy thing about, you know, uh, rugby is trying to kill each other, respect, but then, uh, you know, yeah. at least in college, the drink up, and you would think that we had best friends with, with the, uh, the guys. And that's awesome. I love hearing that. You know, finally, uh, a sport, right, AJ? A lot of people are, uh, on the podcast are into tennis and running. That's not me. <laughs> I'm more football guy, rugby. I love it. This has been awesome, Ian. We really appreciate you you joining us and sharing your your knowledge. And, uh, you know, especially as a chief data officer, people really want to understand. It's, you know, it's a really vital and important role within any organization. So we appreciate you sharing that. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Ian Wright, the chief data officer, data-driven marketing at Equifax Marketing Services. I am Vincent Petrofessa. That's AJ Gupta. This has been another episode of The Marketing Stir. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon.
0: Thanks for listening to The Marketing Stir podcast by Sturista. Please like, rate, and subscribe. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, email us at themarketingstir at And thanks for listening.